Zara, I am so excited to talk about today's sponsor. It's the new film, Challenges. It's from the director of Call Me By Your Name, Luca Guadagnino, and stars and is produced by none other than our girl Zendaya. Yeah, you know I love her. You love her too. I love her so much. Zendaya plays Tashi Duncan, a former tennis prodigy turned coach who is married to a Grand Slam champion, currently on a losing streak. And if that's not bad enough, Tashi's strategy to help her husband break his curse sort of takes a surprising and awkward turn. Hmm, awkward indeed. Because now he must face off against his former best friend and Tashi's ex-boyfriend, Patrick. Zara, the tensions are running high. I know. Tashi's someone who makes no apologies for her game on and off the court. It's her game, her rules, but with her past and present colliding, Tashi must face reality and ask herself, what will it cost to win? Challenges is the sexy drama that everyone's talking about and it's definitely not one you want to miss. It's about passion, friendship and what happens when your past comes back to challenge you. You can grab a ticket from Tuesday the 26th. So grab your friends and get excited. I will be grabbing you and we are definitely going to be going to watch it. Oh, please. Thank you so much to Challenges for making this episode of Shameless possible. One of the biggest days for me was Splendour in the Grass 2018. I'd only played in front of about 100 people. And my set that day was the very first set on a Saturday morning, which is like obviously everyone's partied the night before on Friday. I'm a new artist, have one song out, didn't expect anyone to be there. Everyone's going to be hungover. And I I thought there'd be like 400 people maybe and it was going to be my biggest audience ever. And then... When I walked out on stage, there was over 10,000 people. I just broke out into tears as soon as I walked out there because it was like, fuck, so many hours I put into it. I also used to DJ on the side and work as a wedding drummer and do jobs that I didn't really like to just buy the equipment in my studio to make the music and for it to all come true was just like mind-blowing. this In Conversation episode of Shameless with the absolutely energising G Flip. G is a drummer turned solo artist, singer-songwriter and music producer who, after uploading her single About You to Triple J Unearthed in February 2018, has since become a rising and stellar success. G has performed at music festivals like Splendour in the Grass and One Night Stand to her thousands of adoring fans and released her debut studio album About Us in August last year. In this chat, Gee tells us about realising she was gay when she was just a child, the heartwarming moment her dad joined her on stage last year, as well as navigating a breakup publicly amidst the train wreck of a year that is 2020. Here's Gee. Gee Flip, welcome to Shameless In Conversation. We are so stoked to have you on today. Hello, everyone. How are we going? We are... (laughs) Well, it's an interesting way that we've started this chat, G, because before we started recording, we are all based in Melbourne. We are all in lockdown. We didn't have great news with regards to numbers. So it's a weird deflating time to be in Melbourne, isn't it? Yeah, it's it's a bit rough and I think people just need to abide by the rules that Mr. Mm. Dan Andrews is setting out and, you know, if everyone sticks to the rules then we'll be out of this quicker. Oh, 
Oh, it's so weird, isn't it? That we go on this roller coaster every single morning and it almost feels unfair that no other state in Australia is going through it. Like I'm happy for the other states, but also there's like a pang in my heart where I'm like, if you could just understand. I know. Yeah, I get on the, every Sunday morning, I get heaps of Instagrams of people who are out partying, listening to drink too much. Like it's just standard every Sunday I get that. And people in Perth, Adelaide, like everywhere else are all at pubs, like sending me all these rowdy videos and I just wake up on a Sunday, you know, alone, haven't seen people in a while. (laughs) Just like, hey, guys. (laughs) Glad you're having fun. Yeah. Hey, gee, with all of this in mind, I guess it's it's a strange time in the world. It has been for the last few months. So we're starting with a very simple question, and that is, how are you? I'm really good. I've had two really good weeks. I think my journey through ISO has been a little bit strange. I was meant to kind of move to LA and then two days before my flight, Corona kind of hit and I had to come back to Melbourne. And then the start of my ISO was really good. I was like, man, I haven't been in the same spot for so long. I've always been traveling and it felt great to be in my studio and staying in one space for quite a while and then it kind of went downhill and my mental health went a bit downhill and I went through a breakup and everything was just all my shows postponed and everything felt like it was crashing down and yeah I had a bit of a rough dark period but now I've bounced back and now yeah I'm feeling good the last two weeks have been the best weeks that I've had so far. Kind of feels like the definition of when it rains, it pours, right? Like I feel like a lot of people have gone through breakups in ISO. I feel like it's probably the worst time to go through a breakup because you have no one to like sit with and cry into a tub of ice cream with. Yeah, I know. Well, when it happened, it was actually in that middle period before ISO number one and ISO number two. So then I had some friends to just like watch me cry. They literally just sat with me and just like watch me cry for like, a week and then yeah ISO 2's happen but you know when you go through a breakup and you go through like the three stages of breakup I feel like the first stage you like re- really super sad crying your eyes out in bed second stage you want to party and just like drink and be crazy <laughs> and be like no nah, I'm okay and then third stage you just get hella healthy and ripped I feel like that's <laughs> the yeah. I think that's hang on you're like I've got I need to use my energy to exercise or do something right now because there's so much going on in my mind. I know, yeah. So I'm in stage three and I'm getting up every day and I go for it. I do 10,000 steps in the morning, do PT nearly every day and eat healthy and I'm cooking and, yeah, I just feel like a new woman. (laughs) I love it. That's what we want to hear. We all want to be in stage three of breakups, not stage three of ISO lockdown. Tell us, we're all in lockdown right now, so that means we do all have time to consume so much stuff. We've got time to read things and watch things and listen to things. Is there something you'd recommend to the listeners at home that would kind of distract them from the world right now? Well, I may have already listened to your podcast with Asia D. I'm a big The Bold Type fan and for anyone out there who hasn't seen that series, The Bold Type is just a fucking great show. So that's what I'd recommend for it's sure. It's so good. Do you spend much time reading? Are you a reader at all or do you spend more time listening to music and watching stuff? I work a lot like in here in my studio, which takes up like a lot of my time. So I don't do too much reading, but I bought some books and I'm going to try and give them a go. But I'm one of those people that probably buys books and then they just sit there looking pretty and I never read them. But yeah, I watch some stuff 
but other than that I play a lot of like piano and work here making songs all day so I'm not a avid like reader or watcher there is that classic saying I'm gonna butcher it right now where it's like you're either someone who creates the art or kind of consumes it so it sounds like you're probably the former rather than the latter that you like to create things and to have other people listen to them or watch them rather than do that yourself yeah, I reckon that sounds about right. Well done, Michelle. Good psychoanalysis. Gee, <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> what was your childhood like? What was little G like? I look pretty much the same. Like I dressed I dressed myself from the age of two and I always liked wearing colourful T-shirts and shorts and hats. So if there's any photos of me as a kid, people normally laugh at it because they look exactly like me now. But, yeah, I was a really loud kid. I was a kid that would run through the door of someone's house rather than, like, holding mummy's hand, like, waiting to go in. Or, like, if we went to Woolworths, I'd be the kid that would run around and then probably get called over the loudspeaker that I've been lost. And, yeah, I like to talk to strangers as a kid and I like to talk to strangers now. So <laughs> I was very loud as a kid, I'd say. I did hear you say in an interview last year that you knew you had crushes on girls from a really early age. You suspected that perhaps you were gay from the age of three, which struck me as just so incredibly young. Talk to us about that time, about kind of reckoning with that side of yourself. Do you remember sitting down and going, oh, like it's all clicking into gear now, I know what's going on? Or was it a really long, drawn-out process for you to kind of realise your identity? Um, I think it was definitely a long, drawn-out process. I think the inner voice in me was always like, no, you're not, no, you're not. And, like, from the age of three, I remember always wanting, you know, you'd play husband and wife. I'd always Mm -hmm. want to be the husband because I wanted to have a wife. And, yeah, I always had little crushes on girls growing up and through primary school and through high school. But I feel like back then growing up, it was never on TV. It was no one used female pronouns in music. There was no one for me to look up to like on TV or anything like that. And, you know, in primary school, if someone had gay parents, it would be like, oh, my God, they've got gay parents. Like it was whispered about. And then when I went into year seven, a girl in year 12 came out and everyone in year seven was like, oh, my God, that girl's gay. Like, And then I remember in year seven, a girl in my class used to pick on me and be like, Flip, we know you're gay. Why don't you just come out already? And all of this, you know, information that was feeding into my brain just made me hide it and be like, no, I'm not, no, I'm not, no, I'm not. So this inner voice was always telling me, no, you're not, no, you're not. I also went to a Catholic girls' high school and all the girls that have now come out in my year level did it after high school. So no one came out during high school, but I've revisited my high school now And I had the most heartwarming moment because I did like an interview and played some songs and a girl put up her hand and she basically was like, she had a little pride flag on her blazer and she was like, I'm coming to your underage show and me and my girlfriend are coming to see you. And I felt like crying then and there because it just warmed my heart so much that this like year 12 student at my old high school was just saying this in front of a whole class of people. And that was so not something that I would have felt comfortable saying. So I really, the inner voice was telling myself, no, 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 for so long. 
How does that breed shame for someone like like a young girl like you who's hearing all this stuff and hearing all these whispers and people aren't really being open about it when you're really young? Like what does that look like beyond you saying to yourself, you're not gay, you're not gay, you're not gay? Does it kind of warp your perception of yourself a bit? Yeah, I think I've always been a very sure of myself person and I always felt like that was the final thing. Like I felt like I was always like, 95% me my whole way through life and then there was that 5% that you know I just kept inside and I never explored because of my inner voice telling me no and then as soon as I went there I was like it was honestly one of the best moments of my whole entire life it like makes me a little bit teary sorry I like to cry a lot <laughs> but as oh, soon so as away. Yeah, <laughs> yeah as soon as that happened and as soon as I like kissed the first girl that I kissed it was like oh my god euphoric because I was 100% me then oh look at me tearing up (laughs) but it's so nice and I think it's so interesting to hear these kind of stories Zara and I are both straight and I can't even imagine having to go through that at such a young age like I feel like puberty and everything is such a clusterfuck of a time in all of our lives to have to deal with this internal questioning and internal examination constantly on top of all that feels like it would be such a huge hurdle to cross over that straight people don't need to. One thing I want to know about that time though is what was it like in the mainstream media? I feel like now I've really noticed in Australia we're seeing same-sex couples shown in advertising in particular. There are storylines in books and TV shows and music At the time that you were growing up, though, I'm guessing at very similar times to Zara and I in the mid-noughties, there wasn't that. Like, we didn't see any diversity in the kinds of romantic relationships on our screens or on our radios or whatever. How was that? Do you think that was a big difference to you and do you notice that changing now? Yeah, 100%. If there were, you know, queer storylines in movies, TV series, if there were queer musicians you know, on TV, on the radio back when I was growing up, it would have had a massive impact on me for sure. And I think it's so great that, you know, the day we're living in now, there are so many, you know, queer storylines and it's out there and there's musicians using female pronouns or male pronouns or any pronouns, you know, it's just so great that it's now in mainstream media because I think it it helps people growing up and kids growing up and, you know, I wish I had that. But I didn't. But if I can be that for some other kid that's sitting at home, then I think I've done my job. I'm guessing you must come from a really supportive and loving family. It sounds like when you did come out, you really cemented that sense of self. And it sounds like they were incredibly supportive. Oh, yeah. My family are awesome. As soon as I told them, dad was like, cool, like, do you still want spag bowl for dinner? And I was like, (laughs) mum was like, oh, yeah makes sense. It was super chill. And when I told my friends, it was super chill. And it was never that environment that made me not want to come out. I think it was more, you know, the exterior environment. I didn't want to be known as the gay chick in high school, rather than like the musician and the drummer. I didn't want to be labeled as that. And that's why I felt safer to explore that stuff outside of high school. Definitely. You said in an interview a couple of months ago, I am just rough around the edges. I haven't brushed my hair in 13 years. I haven't had a haircut in 13 years, actually. I'm just a bit messy, a bit all over the place. Where does that come from? Is your sister or your family the same or are those just qualities unique to you? No, my family's definitely not the same. That's definitely me. My family's all clean and, and nice and stuff, but I've always just been, I don't know, a little terror, I guess. 
Yeah, I haven't got my hair cut in 13 years. That sounds so gross. Everyone's going to think I'm like some. Is that true? I'm joking. You haven't no, had a haircut haven't. in 13 years. <laughs> no, I haven't. What? Look at it. Look at it. <gasps> it's yeah. long, but it's not that. Like, I would imagine someone who hasn't had a haircut in 13 years for their hair to be like on the floor almost. <laughs> no, it's like so dead and split ends and it kind of cuts itself. It's disgusting. But also, <laughs> some of it lit on fire. So that is what. What? What? No, we're not going past that. What? Oh. Um, some of my hair lit on fire when I was on a candle oh, when I was doing things. <laughs> was that was that not the moment where you're like, okay, a part of my hair is lit on fire, maybe it's time to get a haircut to even it all out? Or were you just like, <laughs> eh, what's even more individual now? No, I was like, I'll just let the other side grow out to the other side rather than <laughs> cutting it up. I was like, let's just leave it like that, let it grow out, whatever. <laughs> I love that so much. Okay, so it sounds like that's always been you. What about music? Have you always loved music from the earliest of ages? How did you come across a love of music? Yeah, I've always loved music. Ever since I was little, dad would always play music in the lounge room and as like a two, three-year-old, I'd just run around and air drum and air guitar and he had a big, big influence on me. He was in bands and at like the local pub, nothing special. And I'd go watch him play as like a little kid and look up to him and just think, wow, my dad's an actual rock star. So, yeah, he had a big influence on me. And then as soon as I got into the drums at age nine, me and him would jam in the garage together and he taught me, you know, if he's playing a guitar riff, I should come in and like have a jam with him. And, yeah, it was really special when I brought him out on stage last year. I was just about to ask you about that because I sent Michelle that video last night because it's one of my favourite videos ever when you brought him on stage. Talk to us about the conversation that you guys had, I think, when you were younger, the promise that you made to him to bring him out eventually. Yeah. God, this is going to make me cry as well. Um, <laughs> I get, I cry at everything. I literally, on my walk this morning, I saw two old people holding hands and I was like, oh, my God, so beautiful. Um, but, yeah. Yeah, my dad, I, I've always promised my dad from like an early age when I'd tell him, you know, my dreams and I was always like, Dad, I'm bringing you out on stage one day 100% and we're, we're going to play together in front of thousands. And he's always believed in me and he's always said like, I reckon you're going to do it, I reckon you're going to do it. And my dad wanted to be a musician but his parents weren't as supportive back in the day, like that wasn't really a a profession that most people had or most people saw success in. So he really inspired me and believed in me. And that moment was, oh, God, I'm going to cry. One of the best moments of my life, bringing him out. Like it was so special and he was crying on stage with me and we were both tearing up and it was just magic. Oh. <laughs> were you honest? I mean, it sounds like your parents were incredibly supportive again of your aspiration to become a musician. But talk to us about like school friends and stuff, because it's one thing to say, I want to become a nurse or I want to become a teacher where there's a very clear path. You go to uni, you kind of achieve the career of your dreams. It's another thing to say, I want to become a famous musician and do music full time. And often people kind of raise an eyebrow at those kinds of lofty goals and think, all right, everyone wants to be famous or everyone wants to end up pursuing something really creative and beautiful. Did you used to tell your friends that you wanted to do what you're doing now or were you more secretive about this kind of lofty ambition in your head? I was definitely more secretive about the singing thing. I think most people didn't know I could sing till I was 18 years old. I only started singing when I went to university and studied music. 
but yeah, I, I always had really big dreams in my head from like age eight, nine. And I always kept it a secret, but I'd manifest and think about it every single day of my life. I told a lot of my friends and they knew that I wanted to be a drummer. Drumming was my first thing, was the first thing I was going to have a crack at. I played with a lot of bands and did a lot of sessioning and touring. And then when that fell through, I was like, all right, let's do the solo thing now. And then, yeah, I went for it. Talk to us about the process of writing a song. Like, do you think, because when I hear songs that are really catchy, this is just going to make me sound like so horrendously (laughs) stupid. But when I hear a really catchy song, I honestly think it's one of the smartest things I can hear created because I I don't know how somebody kind of puts all of this stuff together and knows how it's going to sound. How did you know that you were good at it or did you teach yourself? So I started learning drums from the age of nine and then around 14 I decided to teach myself piano and guitar and I'd run home and I'd play around on the piano and the guitar and I started writing my first songs then. And I don't know, when I wrote my first songs, I just fully believed that these songs are great and that these songs are worthy of being on the radio. Like I just always had that belief in myself that my songs were good enough. And I think I just told myself that over and over and I'd write more and I'd write more. And then I didn't show people my songs until I was early 20s. Like I never showed anyone anything. And then I showed my cousin and best friend Shah a lot of my songs. And then they were like her favourite songs ever. And she'd sing them. We'd live together and she'd sing them every single day all the time. And then it gave me, you know, the belief that, oh, well, maybe this is good. And then I just kept going and kept going. Coming up after the break, G explains what it's like pursuing a career as a musician, even after encountering relentless rejection. But first, a word from today's sponsor. It's one thing to pursue your dream when you have people around you supporting you, but it's another to continue pursuing it in the face of rejection. You've been very open across your career so far that the rejections did come, particularly from producers that you wanted to work with. Can you talk to us about that? What is it like to... I guess, be putting out this music and start showing it to people that you care about and then to get no's in return. Yeah, so after I finished up drumming for a lot of bands and I decided to go solo, I wrote a lot of demos, just me on piano or me on guitar, and then I thought they were great and then I sent them out to, like, I think over 20 producers and I got rejected from everyone. A lot of them didn't reply or... Some of them just said back to me, you know, good stuff, but, you know, not taking on any more projects at the moment. And, yeah, I think, you know, that was a turning point. I could have been like, oh, fuck, I'm shit at this, or or I could have gone the other way and I just went the other way and I just said to myself, well, if no one's going to produce my own music, I'll fucking do it myself then. So, yeah, then I taught myself. I feel like if you have a goal, you have to be prepared to, do everything to get to that goal and not wait around for anyone to help you. You have to be ready to take it on all yourself and then the people will come around you to help you once you really commit to it and spend the time to make it happen. And, yeah, I'm so I'm actually so thankful that they all rejected me. That was the, the best thing that ever happened to me because it made me sit in this room and, like, form my own sound and create and... You know, I, my first song about you was in that period and actually like half the songs on my album came from that period of me just experimenting and learning how to produce. 
How does it feel to prove some of those producers wrong? Do you ever think about that? Is there like a fire that drives you from those rejections? Not really. I'm never sour about anything. I'm more thankful. Like I thank them. I'm like, thank you for rejecting me because things turned out the way that I wanted. And I'm so thankful I got that time to make stuff myself and create myself. Where does that come from though? Like that drive? Very, very few people have that drive within them. Is that something you've learned over the course of your life or is that something you were born with? Have you always been super ambitious? I think as a kid, I like taught myself to have a drive. I taught myself that if you work hard enough at something, you can end up doing it. And the first thing I remember teaching myself was how to moonwalk. And I was like six or seven. And I used to watch a lot of Michael Jackson videos and I wanted to learn how to moonwalk at a young age. And every night before bed, I'd look in the mirror and I'd try to teach myself how to moonwalk. And three or four weeks went past. And by the time those weeks had gone past, I could do it. And from that young age, it taught me that if you work hard enough at something and stick to something and do it every day, that you can achieve that goal at the end. And I think that just taught me, I like taught myself something at a young age. So then I learned that if you do anything long enough and you want something enough, then it ends up coming true. So yeah, I think that that kind of stuck with me. I think this is a really beautiful lead into what I wanted to ask you next, right? Because I did hear you say in an interview with Student Edge a little while ago that you spent an entire year making music before you decided to drop a song on Triple J on Earth, but you knew all along through that entire year you were just going to make a year of songs and the best one was going to be dropped. And you said in this interview, I wanted to make sure that if I was successful, I was ready with other songs behind me. I really worked for it and if no one liked my music and it didn't work out as a career for me, I'd still go to sleep happy knowing I'd really given it a crack. Talk to us about that meticulous planning and also patience because I think when it comes to musicians, we mistakenly think that so many are just overnight successes. Oh, yeah. So much work into it. I dedicated, yeah, a whole year to write after I got rejected. I spent a whole year to try write as many songs as I could. I had a plan that I'd get the best song out of a whole bunch that I'd write throughout the whole year and that will be the first one I dropped. Actually, my plan was that I'd send my my demos to management in the industry. So I had all their emails ready. I had the month and the date that I was going to send them my demos after a whole year of writing. I'd put all the songs in order of best to what I thought was the least best and About You was first and then I think Drink Too Much, Lover, Morning, like other songs on my album. And my plan was I just wanted the managers to open up my link and listen to my music. So I had to do everything to try and make that happen. So I even went to the length because I knew that they'd probably stalk me and look at my Instagram and I wanted to have a certain impressive amount of followers so they might be like, oh, yeah, maybe I will check out this link. So I spent also a year putting videos of me drumming on Instagram for an entire year, hashtagging heaps of drumming hashtags because I knew that I'd get a heap of followers and that <laughs> and then right before I sent the managers my link I changed my handle over to G flip and literally just the little things like that I knew that oh maybe they'll stalk me and if they if I have like 15k they might actually want to click the link because I just wanted to make sure they'd listen to my music and then obviously I got nicer photos done of myself and just had this whole package around just wanting the managers to click the link because obviously I'd been rejected before when I sent people demos. So I just wanted to impress them. And I really believed that the music was good enough. And then when I sent that link out, I got 
you know, something like eight replies back who wanted to meet me in the industry. And it was like a whole year's work was so great. And then the week that I dropped about you on Unearth was also the week that I signed a management contract. So yeah, it was it it was a long a year process and yeah, everyone around me knew I was on a mission and I did heaps of little like little things to make sure that it happened and I just hoped that they clicked on that SoundCloud link. Yeah. I can't tell you how much I enjoy that story and hear you tell it so candidly because I think women have a tendency sometimes to downplay our achievements. Like we've been taught to kind of be polite and meek and mild. And when we achieve something, we're taught to just pretend it happened by chance. or like we threw something at the wall and it happened to stick. And I think it's so refreshing to hear you talk about your career like that because it does take like a lot of dot connecting. You've got to think really oh, yeah. pragmatically about it sometimes for everything to align. We keep quoting you back to you, but we're going to continue doing it because this is what we do in every interview. You told NME Magazine, I remember closing my eyes. This is before anyone knew who I was. So lame. But I'd pretend I'd have an audience. What is it like then to go from all that dot connecting, go from all that meticulous planning and strategy to then it paying off and you actually having an audience and then being real fans in front of you? Oh, I'm going to cry again. Yeah, it's so amazing. And I think... This is the room that I do it in. I remember staring at that wall right there and playing guitar and singing and being like one day, you know, and I think one of the biggest days for me was that, oh, God, look, I'm fucking going to cry. Yeah, that Splendour in the Grass 2018, I'd only played in front of about 100 people and I was so stoked that I got a Splendor in the Grass spot. That blew my mind. Like I remember just crying for a whole day, like I'm playing Splendor in the Grass. Oh my God, this is so amazing. And my set that day was the very first set on a Saturday morning, which is like obviously everyone's partied the night before on Friday. I'm a new artist, have one song out, didn't expect anyone to be there. Everyone's going to be hungover. And I, I thought there'd be like 400 people maybe and it was going to be my biggest audience ever. And then when I walked out on stage, there was over 10,000 people. Look, I'm like shaking. And I just broke out into tears as soon as I walked out there because it was like, fuck, so many hours I put into it. And I also used to DJ on the side and work as a wedding drummer and do jobs that I didn't really like to just buy the equipment in my studio to make the music and for it to all come true was just like mind-blowing. I literally saw Zara's eyes welling up and then my eyes welling up. I'm like, oh, my God, we're all such storks. You know what we're going to do, G? I think we're going to put all the links to these videos that you're talking about in our show notes because I think our audience will just want to see this stuff straight away. So we're so going to do that. I wanted to ask you about fame, though, because I think when you suddenly have 10,000 people rocking up at your gigs out of nowhere, well, not out of nowhere, but, you know, when your expectation is about 400 you've got to start thinking about the fact that people now really know who you are. What's it like to realise that people weren't just interested in your music but your life as well? Yeah, it's so lovely. Sometimes I think people like me more than they probably like my music (laughs) with the messages I get. But people that follow my music are so lovely and they send me letters and I'm very active on social media and I, I try to reply to every single message I get. And it just... They have my back, actually. Like the other day when I was sad going through this breakup, I put like a little message on my Instagram being like, I'm a little bit sad. Please make me smile. And I got like 
820 like long paragraph messages from people like who were just so lovely and just made me smile and it's just oh god I'm crying again (laughs) people are just so lovely and so nice and I appreciate all the support I've got and a lot of people have been there since day one who've come to my first ever shows and they come to all my shows and I just thank them so much because yeah their support means the world to me. That all said, I hate to put a negative spin on this now, G, because it is there are so many beautiful things about your career and so many lovely things. But one of the negative aspects of fame and also having a really hectic career where you are traveling a lot and doing a lot is that you did start having panic attacks in 2018. You yeah. actually told Rolling Stone at the beginning of the year that you had a whole month of panic attacks while on tour. What happened there? Like what was it about your career or what was it about your life at that time when anxiety did come knocking on the door? Because as someone with chronic anxiety, I know how terrible it can be to find yourself in that mental state. How did you find yourself there? Yeah, it was around I think August or September 2018 and I had it was my second Oz tour and I've never experienced anxiety uh, till that point and it just took over me and it was – I, I just remember lying awake at night and my heart pounding and just like not being able to sleep and just stressing over every little thing and my brain just ticking over and not stopping. And then I'd get on the plane and then I'd be my heart beating. And then before I'd go on stage, I didn't want to go on stage because I thought I was going to stuff up all my lyrics and everyone was putting cameras in my face trying to film everything. And it was such a rough time on me. And it went for like the whole length of the tour, which was over a month and I just didn't sleep and I just remember being like, oh, my God, this is going to be me forever. I'm stuck like this. I've I've cooked it. And, yeah, it was really, really, really tough and I was also confused because I didn't know what was going on because I'd never experienced anxiety and then, yeah, I started talking to a therapist and learning about what it is and then just managing it and now, you know, I live with anxiety still to this day. I just know how to manage it a little bit more and I just didn't see it coming, to be honest. Mm -hmm. Can you pin down what the anxiety was about or is it too difficult to do that? I know sometimes I find myself feeling anxious and I have no idea why. Was it a sense that you couldn't live up to what was now an expectation of you or you couldn't live up to the hype, I guess, of what G Flip had become in the public eye? What was the source of it? I think it was just work stress. I do a lot. Like I do too much and I've learned to let other people do more for me. Like back then in that year, I was doing all my art, all my film clips, like editing my film clips, like just doing too much, like writing the songs, recording this. Like I was just biting off more than I could chew. That did take a toll on me. Also playing the shows, I was so scared of stuffing up lyrics. I don't know why. Like this had this massive anxiety that because everyone would take videos, like Instagram videos or whatever, and I was so scared I was going to stuff up lyrics and then people won't think I'm professional and, yeah, I was just so in my head and just was a very strange time, but I haven't had anything that that bad ever since that time. Let's talk about some of those beautiful lyrics because you share so much of yourself in the songs that you write. And in another interview you did, you said, I definitely overshare information and tell people everything that's going on in my life when they even don't want to know. I don't hide. I don't have secrets with writing. I wouldn't know how to not write honestly. What compels you to want to tell people about your life and kind of let them in through your writing and through your music? I don't think really anything compels me. I think that's just who I am as a person. Like 
if you ask me how I am today, I'm going to tell you exactly how I'm fucking feeling today. So I feel like when I write music and you're telling a story, you just feel way more comfortable just telling the honest truth. You know, like I'll just say it how it is. And I think that just me as a everyday person, just I say it how it is. So in my music, I kind of do the same. Has it been unusual for you? You write so many songs about your experiences with love and your experience with one major relationship in your life. Is it quite unusual to then have, I guess, people invested because they love those songs so much, they feel like they've been on the journey with you, to then be invested in that particular relationship and to have to maybe update them with where that relationship's gone? You said at the start of the interview that it ended mid-ISO. Is that weird to feel like you have to keep people updated? Yeah, I think me and my ex-partner, we had a conversation and we felt like we needed to let everyone know because some people are extremely invested in in what our relationship was and they'd follow both of us and talk to both of us and we thought, yeah, it's probably best that we announce this because then people might be following us and be like, oh, my God, that person's doing this and that person's doing what's going on and, like, they'd start to be rumours or whatever. So, Yeah, we thought it was best to update, but also like, you know, that's not a big deal, I think, for either of us. So we tend to overshare and not overshare, just share, you know, so just tell people what's going on and update people. And I like people knowing what's going on in my life and how I'm feeling because, yeah, I'm not someone that's going to go on social media and then pretend that I'm really happy when I'm not. If I'm sad, I'll post a video of me crying a little bit or something. (laughs) And it's clearly been like a a huge thing for your fans and followers. I think that's clearly why they've been able to connect with you so much. I wanted to ask you, unfortunately, about this damn pandemic that we're finding ourselves in because it has had a huge impact on the music industry and the live music scene. Talk to us about how it's affected your career in the last few months and the people around you. Yeah, obviously it's put a halt to a lot of the plans that I had. Um, I had a sold-out tour that's still getting postponed and, you know, we thought we had dates but then the second wave's come through so, you know, it's hard, it's been hard to place new dates for that and I obviously had lots of plans over in the States and I had a lot of sessions booked to write for other artists in the music industry overseas so... Yeah, that's had a bit of an effect on me and I think, you know, it was I went through my little dark period where everything was crashing down a little bit and that had part to do with that. Yeah, it's all affected us pretty hard. The, our schedules are a little bit more free now, um, but it's forcing everyone to stay connected and stay online and do online concerts and, you know, change it up a little bit because we still want to, you know, entertain people and still give people what they want, which is music. Turning it into a positive, what have you learned about yourself? It sounds like you've had a really tricky but also really life-affirming few months. What are the lessons that you're taking away from them? Oh, I've learned so much. I've learned that if you get out of bed before eight, your day is going to be great. So (laughs) that's my newest one. So I get up early. I try to get in 10,000 steps and then doing fitness is so great. Getting up early, doing fitness, eating well, are so important and then you get more hours in your day if you wake up earlier so it just changes everything and I think self-reflection is good it's okay to not be okay it's okay to cry coming from me the, <laughs> the crying demon and yeah it's great to stay connected check in on your mates and you know just use this time to like reflect on yourself and watch a 
show you've never watched or listened to a podcast. Yeah, and stay connected. You really are in stage three of breakup phase, aren't you? Where everything's kind of like you're like, I'm really doing this right now. I'm working yeah. on myself. <laughs> yeah. I'm I'm so it's so weird. I'm actually so excited to go to sleep to wake up again, which is just I reckon pretty cute. <laughs> that's awesome. That is awesome. And Lovely. I think that's really interesting because our last question we ask everyone, right, is with all of this in mind, what does success mean to you? Ah, success, success, success means, I think, just being happy. I think, obviously, with a music career and the music industry in a whole, there's a lot of mental health issues and a lot of stresses and, you know, doing a lot of hours of work. So if you can maintain, you know, a happy life through it all, I think, you know, that's success for sure. So yeah, just being happy. And if I'm happy, then everyone around me and my family and friends are going to be happy as well. So yeah. Oh, gee, thank you so much. You are such a delight and your energy is very infectious. I have to say, like, I feel incredibly energized after having this conversation with you. It has been a wonderful start to our day. I'm personally ready to go eat healthy and like kickstart my day. (laughs) (laughs) That's good. Yeah. Yeah. Great. That's awesome. I'm sorry for crying so much. You guys Never. just hit me, hit me with all the questions that made me emotional. <laughs> That's our job. That's our job. G, thank you so much. No worries. Thanks, girls. Thank you so much for listening to this In Conversation episode of Shameless with G Flip. If you'd love more from G, you can find her on Instagram at G Flip. If you enjoyed this episode, we think you'll also love our In Conversation episodes with Bridget Hustwaite and the Veronicas. We will pop links to both of those episodes in our show notes. As for us, well, the best way to support Shameless is to subscribe to our show. If you are listening on Apple Podcasts, we would so appreciate you clicking the big purple subscribe button. If you're listening on Spotify, we'd love it if you clicked follow. That helps new listeners find our show every single week. That is all from us. We will be back in your ears on Monday with a wrap in the week that was in pop culture. See you then. Hello, guys. Mish here. I am the co-founder of Shameless Media. Thank you so much for giving us your ears and your mind and your time. We're so grateful. If you enjoy the stuff that we produce, may I recommend our brand new podcast, Style-ish. Style-ish, if you want to say it quickly. Style-ish, if you want to take the long way through. It is our podcast for all things fashion, brand, business, and beauty. If that is in your wheelhouse. If you care about style content, you will love this show. It is, of course, more than just a show as well. It is a newsletter. It is an Instagram feed. It is a TikTok account. There is so much good stuff going out on Stylish every single day starting now. So in your favorite app, search for Style-ish. Give it a listen. Give it a follow. We are an independent media company and we would be so, so grateful for all your support. That's all for me, guys. Check out Stylish and have a good one.